Good evening. Um, my name is Nick Stern. I'm um, Professor of Economics and Government at the LSE and Chair of the Grantham Institute. Um, the, uh, this is organized by the LSE US Center, to whom we're very grateful. And the head of that center, uh, Peter Trubowitz, unfortunately can't be here tonight, which is why I'm here uh, tonight. But uh, we're very grateful to the US Center for organizing this and inviting Joe. And um, this is part of the uh, Phelan or Phelan family lecture series, pronunciation depending which side of the Atlantic uh, you are, um, which uh, continues next term. So look out for it. There are lots of interesting people coming. Um, now, I'm going to introduce Joe very quickly. Uh, the reason you're here and so many people can't uh, get in is because you know who uh, Joe Stiglitz is. Uh, he's a university professor. As a <laughs> his university is unflappable, by the way. He wouldn't mind that sort of thing. He's the university professor at uh, Columbia University, 2001 Nobel Prize in Economics. Um, he has written right across our subject. I've worked very closely with Joe over the years on development economics and public finance and on climate. Those are three subjects. But Joe has been everywhere. And we were introduced to each other by uh, Bob Solo. Um, we met in 1969 in Kenya. And uh, Bob said, uh, you know, you must meet Joe Stiglitz. So I said, all right. And we did. And we've been friends for 50 years. But a little later, Bob explained to me that uh, the only subject that is safe from Joe is econometrics. <laughs> and, uh, he's, and it's extremely important that he straddles the whole spectrum. Because we suffer in our subject from people saying, well, I'm a labor economist. Um, I'm an IO uh, economist. I'm a macro economist. And it damages what we do. Because now more than ever, it's about putting all parts of economics together. And there's no one uh, better at doing that than Joe. And he's always done it in a way that builds very firmly on economic theory, that builds very firmly on understanding of political economy and what's going on. And also, in many cases, courage. It often does take courage. This can be a tough business to challenge um, vested interests, to challenge status quo, whether it be academic vested interests or economic vested interests. So it's a great privilege to have uh, Joe with us. He will speak for 50 minutes or so. He's capable of speaking for five hours or so <laughs> because of his great range and his insights, but it'll be about 50 minutes, then we'll keep um, half an hour or so for questions, and then they'll be signing uh, afterwards. Joe, it's, it's a great privilege to have you here, to have you back here at the LSE. Thanks so much and please talk to us. Well, it's a real pleasure to, to be back at uh, LSE again. And um, uh, the title of my talk is Progressive Capitalism, an Answer to America's Problems. Uh, the question itself uh, begs a question, does America have problems? And uh, I think the answer is pretty clear. Uh, the answer is yes. 
Uh, and I'm only going to touch on one set of one aspect of that are some of the economic problems. Uh, but uh, as I'll suggest, uh, many of our political problems are actually related um, uh, to those economic problems. So what I'm going to do in, in, in uh, the short amount of time <laughs> I've been given is <laughs> that I'm going to, uh, the first part I'm going to uh, describe some of the economic problems, and then I'm going to try to provide a, a <laughs> diagnosis of where we went wrong, what, what is the source of these uh, problems, and finally, uh, uh, the remedies, uh, the idea that this concept that I call progressive capitalism, I'll try to explain what it is, uh, may be the answer. So, there is, in many respects, uh, a justified discontent with uh, America's economic system. Uh, in spite of the advances in knowledge about economics and reforms in our economic system, you know, economists are supposed to uh, told us what to do, and we think we've learned something in the last 30 years, 40 years, and sometimes governments actually pay attention. Uh, but in spite of all that advance in knowledge and and quote, reforms in the economic system. Growth in the United States over the last 40 years has been about two-thirds of what it was in the decades after World War II. And this is particularly surprising since we are supposed to be in an age of innovation, and the United States is supposed to be the most innovative economy in the world. So in spite of the fact that there's all this innovation, growth, at least uh, as we conventionally measured, is, is uh, actually lower than it uh, used to be. And investment remains weak in spite of high returns. And I've written a lot about what are wrong with our measures, but in fact, I think our measures overstate how well we're doing rather than understate it. So here's just a, a few uh, figures that illustrate uh, that the quarter century after World War II, uh, growth was so much higher than it was, and this is true, than it has been in the last uh, 30 years. And this is true uh, both in the Europe and the United States. Actually, the discrepancy in Europe is even larger. And this just shows the fact that profits are uh, so much higher today as a percentage of GDP than they were, say, uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. But investment as a share of GDP is actually down. Probably even more disturbing than any of the numbers that uh, I've just given is that the benefits of what little growth has occurred has gone almost entirely to the top. And there are lots of other indicators that, of, the, of the growing inequality. So this is a graph looking at the average income of uh, the bottom 90% and the average income of the top 1%. The line that looks like it's the horizontal axis is not the horizontal axis. That is the average income of uh, the bottom 90%. Uh, you have to have a magnifying glass to see that there has been some improvement in the last 40 years. Uh, but if you don't have very good eyes, you won't be able to see it. You don't need a magnifying glass to see that the uh, average income of the top 1% has gone up. Uh, and uh, I know that in your uh, classes, you learn how to manipulate statistics to give uh, distort, especially those who are going into politics. But <laughs> uh, I want to emphasize these are all 
natural numbers. I mean, these are just the numbers that come out of the data set. So I haven't even had, the, had to do any manipulation to make things look worse than they are. They just come out looking uh, that bad. Um, the share of labor, when I was a graduate student, we, all, uh, we developed a lot of theories about uh, why the share of labor uh, was constant. Uh, Nikki Calder, a famous economist at Cambridge, uh, uh, described uh, a set of stylized facts that he believed described economies in that period of time, and one of the stylized facts was the share of labor was constant. And we all spent a lot of time developing theories about why that was so. And after we had succeeded in doing that, it no longer succeed, uh, continued to be so. So uh, the good news is that you have theories to try, you, you need to explain why the share of labor has gone down. Now, one of the things that we've done here, I, I haven't done this, this is a, uh, an economist uh, at Bard College, um, is to take out the income of the top uh, 1% of labor. And the reason uh, to, for doing that is that in the data that you get, uh, the bankers, the CEOs are all called workers because they get what we call in the United States a, 1090, uh, a W-2. They get paid by others. So they're pay, they're in the data set of workers, but they're not workers. You know, you have to pay them a lot to get them off the golf course, but uh, uh, they're not really like ordinary, uh, what we think of as blue-collar workers. If you take out that top 1% of so-called workers, and you look at the share of income of the remaining 99%, it was fairly steady at around 75% of national income for a very long time. And then over the last um, 40 years, it's gone down from 75% to 60%. That's an enormous drop. You may have noticed, uh, if you look at some of the rallies of um, uh, the president, that there are a lot of uh, uh, that is uh, disproportionately male and uh, disproportionately angry males uh, who have uh, anger control problems. And um, there is an economic uh, explanation of this in part. The median income, remember median is half above, half below, of a full-time male worker, and the full-time male workers are the lucky ones, is at the same level in the United States that it was more than 40 uh, years ago. That's really quite remarkable to have uh, four decades of uh, stagnation. But at the bottom, things are even worse. The real wages at the bottom in the United States are at the same level they were roughly 60 years ago. So when I give this kind of a talk uh, in, in China, they find this unbelievable because 40, 50 years ago, their per capita income was $150, and the idea that you would have no change in income over a half century, 60 years, is really quite remarkable. And this in a, in a country that claims to be the most innovative in the world. The wealth inequality is about twice the income inequality. Uh, and this chart shows uh, a pattern that you see both in income and wealth inequality, that it did go down dramatically uh, after the Great Depression, but then uh, beginning uh, 
around 1980, late 1970s, it started to increase. And the share of the uh, top uh, 1% in wealth is about twice that in income. The share of the top one-tenth of 1%, um, go, it's about 20% of the wealth in the United States goes to the top one-tenth of 1%. Uh, probably the, one of the most disturbing statistics relates to inequalities in opportunity because uh, Americans think of the, uh, the country as a land of opportunity, and a lot of other people look at Americans, talk about it as a land of opportunity. And it is a land of opportunity if uh, you have a lot of wealth and you migrate to the United States. It's a great place uh, to be. Or if you are extremely bright and talented. But when social scientists talk about opportunity, what they mean is, what are the life prospects of a young American, and how do they relate to that of his parents or her parents? And the fact is, the life prospects of a young American are more dependent on his or her parents than in almost any other advanced country. So I tell my student, there's one important decision you have to make, uh, choice you have to make uh, in your life, and that's choosing the right parents. <laughs> and if you mess up on that, you're, you know, the game is over. Uh, so um, this uh, shows the, uh, uh, a chart from the OECD that's a little old, but, but the data, more recent data is exactly uh, the same, and it shows that um, the U.S., and you will also notice U.K., trying to struggle to be like America uh, in many, many ways, uh, uh, and uh, not quite achieving either the amount of inequality or the lack of mobility. But what the, you see is that the countries with high levels of inequality, which is measured along the vertical axis, are countries with very low levels of mobility. And the countries like Denmark, uh, Norway, and Finland, with a high level of equality, um, have uh, also a high level of mobility. One of the statistics that has been probably most alarming is uh, health statistics. Uh, life expectancy in the United States has been going down every year since Trump got elected. It's partly because we're all obsessed with it. We can't sleep. Uh, 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 you know, you don't know what's going to bombard you the next minute, whether we're going to war, trade war, military war, uh, who will offend, uh, what children will rip off away from their parents or so forth. But uh, so there is a reason that there, there may be a causal factor here. But there are other. Uh, uh, the fact is that even before this uh, began, uh, as Trump began, the life expectancy was uh, beginning to go down. And this is in spite of the fact that the U.S. spends more on health care than any other country. It spends about twice as much uh, per capita as France, and the health outcomes are much poorer. Uh, and there are large and growing disparities uh, in life expectancies. So that uh, if, you're bo uh, if, 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 if you're poor, your life expectancy is much less than uh, if you are rich. Um, some of this is not surprising, given the absence of the recognition of right to access to health care as a basic human right. But it goes beyond this. Many of these are uh, de deaths of despair. 
uh, social diseases, alcoholism, drug overdose, suicide. And uh, the uh, increase in those numbers has been uh, uh, absolutely amazing. The only time I saw anything like that was when I was chief economist of the World Bank. It was in the period of the um, transition from communism to a market economy. We got data, we were getting data saying that GDP was going down by a third. We couldn't believe it. I mean, after all, we were told that moving from communism to a market economy was supposed to increase income. And the data said it was doing just the opposite. But when we got demographic data saying that life expectancy was going down, particularly of males, by a couple of years relative to what was going on in the rest of the world, we knew that there was a social breakdown and that something was going on. And the same thing is true in the United States. And you can see them uh, in this kind of graph as almost a disease sweeping across the country. Um, these are what I call heat maps, one for 2000, one for 2014. The dark areas are the areas of high death rates low, short life expectancy. And uh, you can see the darker area sweeping, you know, it's, it's a disease, but there's no disease really going on. It's an economic disease of a dysfunctional economy. Uh, if you look at that map, you will see one other thing, uh, high correlation with those who voted for uh, Trump. And uh, it's also a high correlation if you look county by county with economic opportunity, where there are more upward mobility, you'll see a high correlation with that as well. There are other symptoms that things are not going well, the decline in number of new and young firms, um, persistence of racial disparities, uh, corporate uh, exploitation is uh, pervasive. Uh, um, you know, economists are not supposed to talk about moral issues, but there is an absence of moral compass when you have uh, the kinds of behavior you see in the financial sector, the exploitation, the predatory lending, uh, the discrimination, uh, market manipulation. Uh, but it's not just in the financial sector. You have Dieselgate in, in the automobile. You have childhood diabetes are largely promoted by the food industry, and they don't want to do anything about it. And the opioid epidemic, uh, which is brought on by the pharmaceutical industry. And in fact, I think problems are likely to become even worse. Uh, uh, the changes in technology uh, will both augment market power and decrease demand for workers, especially those of limited skills. And um, what growth we have experienced is not sustainable. We are living beyond our planetary boundaries, the theme I'll come back to later on. So um, not surprisingly, given all these economic problems, uh, we have a dysfunctional politics. Um, one of the two parties is actually systematically uh, committed to undermining democracy. And that's a strong statement, but I'm afraid it's true. It's engaged in systematic disenfranchisement, disempowerment, putting democracy in chains. Uh, rather than majority control with minority rights, we have minority control with very limited rights for the majority. For instance, a vast majority of Americans want things like gun control, reproductive rights, increased minimum wages, better regulation of banks, universal access to health care. Uh, I, I could go on with a long list, and we can't get them. When I say that, you know, 70% of the people want m most of these things, and we can't get it through our Congress. 
Um, and uh, even worse, uh, they've been engaged in obstructing efforts to achieve these uh, at the lo local level. So we've had, for instance, a grassroots movement, it's called Fight for 15, to increase, to double the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour to $15. And many states have said, and, and Seattle, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, a lot of places around the country have had these grassroots movements have been successful. And the Republican Party, which says it believes in local rights, says, no, this is too dangerous, and have tried in many of the states to stop uh, the states from pa uh, communities from passing this kind of uh, legislation. So I wanted to move on to uh, what went wrong. And uh, I can summarize uh, this uh, fairly simply that. Beginning around 1980, uh, the United States uh, began what might be called a neoliberal experiment. Uh, in the U.S., we didn't use the word neoliberalism. We used the word uh, supply-side economics, but it doesn't matter what you call it. It was the same thing. And uh, this set of doctrines didn't understand the true sources of economic growth. It placed too much faith in markets, too little faith uh, in the need for collective action. It, uh, the result was that it unleashed an era of ring seeking and um, this is especially evident in the growth uh, in the United States in market power. So those of you who uh, studied economics, I don't know if they still do this, with textbooks that begin with the competitive model, they don't do that here, do they? <laughs> uh, uh, where you begin uh, with competition and then at the end of the, of the textbook you talk about monopoly or imperfect competition, all that. I'm sure you don't do that here. Well, um, uh, that's all wrong. <laughs> and you now have to clean, cleanse your mind. And the basic model of the economy is one of market power. And uh, understanding how that plays out in the system as a whole is really at the center of trying to understand what is going on in the United States. So uh, I sometimes use, rather than the word neoliberalism, I use the word market fundamentalism. It's the notion that markets on their own are basically efficient and fair and should be relied upon for the allocation of scarce resources. And uh, this was articulated by Ronald Reagan, where he said, government is the problem, not the solution. And this set of ideas, without that name, has a long history motivated mainly by politics or self-interest of, of people of the very wealthy uh, and a politics that denigrated the role of the state. Uh, it was the source of the opposition uh, some 80 years ago to Keynesian economics. Uh, we had the Great Depression, began in uh, 1929, uh, convenient market, the stock market crash, and then Herbert Hoover with his austerity policies, uh, which you seem to have imitated, um, uh, converted that stock market crash into the Great Depression. And Keynes uh, provided uh, an explanation of what was going on and a policy uh, of what to do about it in terms of fiscal policy uh, being able to stimulate the economy. 
The response of most American economists at that time was to do nothing. There was actually a large, no, a big petition, petition of the American Economic Association that said, don't worry, eventually the economy will recover. We know our models tell us that. Uh, we have models that say the economy is eventually going to have full employment. That's the only equilibrium. Um, and uh, the retort that is attributed to Keynes uh, was, that, yes, in the long run, that might be true, but in the long run, we're all dead. Um, the basic point was why, you have to ask, why did they have such opposition to an idea that was trying to save capitalism? Uh, to show that capitalism could actually deliver with a little help from government. Why were they so antithetical to that idea? Well, they didn't want to admit that markets didn't work, that there could be a market failure, and especially a market failure that could be corrected by government. So this idea that markets worked well was a prevalent idea before the, ninth, before the Great Depression, and we then had uh, uh, almost a half century of Keynesian uh, dominance of Keynesian economics, and then uh, this old idea of market fundamentalism was revived by Reagan and Thatcher, and the basic uh, idea was that it minimized or ignored the market failures, and um, it exaggerated the government failures. So, uh, and, and then uh, another critical moment was with the defeat of communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, market fundamentalist views were energized. Uh, I think it was a wrong interpretation. It wasn't the victory of capitalism, but it was the failure of communism and authoritarianism. But uh, the end of history perspective that Francis Fukuyama put forward in his uh, uh, celebrated book was uh, the belief that eventually and quickly world would converge to liberal democracies and free market economies. Of course, now that belief seems naive, especially with the rise of demagogues, authoritarian figures, and protectionism. And uh, it's hard to realize, but we are in an era where more than 50% of the world's population lives under demagogues or authoritarian uh, figures. Well, neoliberalism didn't work out in the way that Thatcher and, and Reagan had hoped. Uh, the ideas, the policies were that lower taxes, especially at the top, and deregulation would incentivize the economy, it would result in, it would free the economy, it would result in faster growth from which all would benefit. And even tax revenues would grow. But the result was just the opposite. Growth actually slowed, that was the diagrams I showed you earlier, and inequality grew. Those at the bottom and middle saw their income stagnate, deficits soared, and eventually in 2008, the, the economy went into crisis. When things didn't work out as well as they hoped, in, in the early 1980s uh, in the United States, uh, the supply-side economists had said that lowering taxes would actually raise revenues and lower the deficit. The deficit started to balloon, um, growth slowed. When things didn't work out, they doubled down on the strategy. I don't know if you know this expression, double down. 
you know, gambling when you lose money, uh, you, you double your bet in the idea that uh, next time you'll be lucky. Um, well, it didn't work out for the country. Um, things worked out even worse. So from my perspective, after 40 years, this experiment uh, uh, of neoliberalism should be declared a failure, and we need to move on to an alternative. And that's what I'm going to talk about in the last part of the talk. But I want to emphasize that uh, neoliberalism, uh, sometimes uh, um, people try to make a claim that it was based on economic theory and the insights of modern economics. But it wasn't. It was really based on ideology and special interest. Uh, and special interest that benefit from the ideology, the rich who didn't want to pay their fair share of taxes, companies that wanted to exploit others, including coal and oil companies that wanted to pollute the world. There never was a theory behind neoliberalism. To the contrary, research had explained why market failures and exploitation were pervasive. Even limited and imperfect government action could improve matters. Um, one of the doctrines uh, that uh, the high priest of, of uh, American neoliberalism uh, was Milton Friedman. And uh, he taught at University of Chicago, and, and he promulgated the idea that firms ought to maximize shareholder value. Uh, and that should be the single objective. And it was a sin for a firm to do anything other than pay attention to shareholder value. Um, there was no economics behind that assertion. Uh, I feel uh, this very intensely because he was successfully persuading uh, legislatures to move to share, to put in the law, uh, the laws of corporate governance that firms had to maximize shareholder value, and if they didn't, they were being derelict uh, and could be sued. At the same time, Sandy Grossman and I wrote uh, a paper showing that shareholder value maximization did not maximize societal well-being. Um, we thought our paper was very persuasive, uh, and in the subsequent uh, 40 years, nobody refuted it. It's still true. Um, but it took that long for uh, uh, eventually the business community in the United States to be persuaded uh, of our theorem. They actually weren't persuaded by our theorem. Um, with the, 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 about three months ago, uh, the head of the business roundtable in the United States, uh, almost all of them uh, signed a letter uh, saying, that shareholder value maximization was wrong, that you had to look at the community, the workers, the customers, you had to take a broader perspective. It was actually, in many ways, um, a, a, a revolutionary position for uh, these corporations. Uh, don't take what they say seriously, uh, but it was a political response to a widespread view that the corporations were doing things that weren't very good. <laughs> that how do you say the drug companies that are pushing opioids and causing the opioid crisis are 
maximizing societal welfare, even if the Sacklers wind up with billions of dollars? How do you say that the food companies, uh, Coca-Cola, that are causing a childhood diabetes epidemic are maximizing side of welfare, even if it's making them lots of money? So example of example, and uh, the politics of America had, ha has begun to change, and they recognize that, and they wanted to get a little ahead of the game. But among the people signing it were people who were uh, the worst uh, uh, of, of uh, uh, things that they shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have done. So the interesting thing is this historical anomaly, this uh, belief in market fundamentalism, uh, supply side economics, neoliberalism, occurred just as we became, uh, came to understand why markets are almost never efficient, why they are often, as, they are often associated with ext extensive exploitation where well, they often give rise to excessive inequality, and how appropriate interventions could improve societal well-being. So there's a sort of an interesting uh, 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 disjunction between the way th these ideas were sold and what economic theory, certain advances in economic theory were saying. Not a surprise that there's been a lot of anger at the elites who had promised that neoliberalism and globalization, financialization would bring benefits to all. Uh, and it raises the question, were they lying, were they honest, but simply misinformed? Um, and it's almost surely a, a mixture of the two, but if you want to understand some of the anger in the United States, it, I think, played a role that, uh, I think what Obama did played a role in this. He appointed some of the same individuals who have been responsible for financial market deregulation to lead in the recovery uh, of the economy after the financial crisis. So, and, and the result of that is not surprising. Hundreds of billions of dollars went to the banks and very little went to ordinary individuals. Uh, I remember uh, vividly uh, right after the collapse of Lehman Brothers, um, uh, and the Republican, uh, President Bush had proposed a $700 billion bailout for the banks. Uh, there was a conference call with Obama and, and a few others uh, uh, of how, how should the Democrats respond. It was the beginning, it was right in the election period. It was September, and the election is in November. And um, most of the people on that call were, were, were bankers. And their first question was, why only 700 billion? And the response to that was, a trillion sounded too big. But don't worry, if you need more, we'll give you more. And uh, I raised the question, I said, you know, uh, uh, we ought to be paying a little bit more attention to the people who are losing their homes and their jobs. And the banker's response is, you know, shut up, you know, we're talking about serious things here. Uh, the banking system of America. So that gives you the tone of, of a lot of the discussion at that moment of time. Well, um, the, the consequence is that there developed a widespread perception that the political and economic system was rigged. Um, 
Well, the backlash is understandable. It represents, I think, a threat to our civilization and our standard of living. And I want to digress here for just about uh, for a few minutes because I think it is really important to understand what is the basis of our standard of living because that is going to be the basis of what other policies that we can construct to maintain progress, okay, and share progress. Um, we've had enormous increases of standard of living uh, over the past 250 years. Uh, uh, these are reflected uh, in a couple graphs. Um, data, I don't want to make a big deal about data going back a thousand years, uh, uh, even worse than data more recently, but uh, from a large number of sources you get this picture that's pretty uh, uh, consistent that uh, until around uh, 17, uh, the later part of the 18th century, or you know, 1780, 1800, uh, living standards hardly changed at all. Um, and then suddenly, uh, around 1800, uh, uh, living standards started to increase uh, in Europe and the United States, uh, and a little later in Asia. And you get uh, the same picture if you look at the real wages of, uh, of London craftsmen, uh, as probably uh, most of you know. Uh, in the UK, people like to collect lots of data. And so you, you get, uh, you, you, you have the wages, you, you have the cost of, of what they consumed. So you can actually get a, a good time series. And if you look at the, uh, that data, you can see um, that there were some wiggles, standards of living did go up uh, a little bit. If you wipe out about a third of the population um, through a bubonic plague, real wages, there is a scarcity of labor, so the law of demand and supply is relevant um, a little bit. Uh, so you can see that uh, here. Um, but then it goes down, as Malthus uh, said, said it would. But again, the same pattern eventually, uh, somewhat after uh, uh, 1800, they started to rise and rise very dramatically. And life expectancy showed the same pattern, uh, a, a, an increase in life expectancy uh, by a factor of two. Really a big deal, uh, something you may not feel, but as you get older, uh, these numbers are, are really significant. Um, so uh, what made all of this possible the answer was science, advances in our understanding of the world around us, social sciences, our, our understanding of humankind, and advances in social organization, the ability to organize cooperative acti activities to coordinate on a large scale. And um, that includes, for instance, economic activities through the market, governed by the rule of law, collective action. Uh, people collectively can do things that they can't do individually. Uh, and this is especially true for a modern economy. And the politics, which set the rules of the game with the separation of powers, checks and balances, I'll come back to that at the end. These are all central ideas of the Enlightenment and it set the stage for progress. Uh, for progress. So what I'm trying to argue here is that the source of the wealth of nations is actually quite different from what Adam Smith talked about in his book called The Wealth of Nations, which he wrote in 1776. He wrote 
before we became an innovation economy, even before we had become a manufacturing economy, the pin factory is not a good model for thinking about a 21st century economy. So the, what I'm trying to argue, the source of the wealth of nations is the creativity of its people, investments in uh, infrastructure, capital goods, but especially in advances in science and technologies, and the institutions that enable them, people to cooperate together to do more than anyone could do alone. When we think of all of this, there is uh, a particular set of institutions uh, that is central. I sometimes refer to them as our truth institutions. Um, all of them require systems of assessing the truth. But all of these are now under attack. The media, the judiciary, our universities, our research institutions, our independent bureaucracy. And in fact, I think the most disturbing aspect of our political moment is the attack on our basic epistemological system with far-reaching effects on our civilization, our standards of living, and the functioning of our systems of political and social organization. So there are lots of disagreements about policy. Those will come, those will, you know, there are always going to be disagreements about policy. What is most disturbing about what's happening in the United States today and in some other countries is the attack on our institutions. And when I talk about that, I mean, in particular, the institutions that are responsible for why we live so much better than we did 250 years ago. And if they were successful in these attacks, it would mean the end of our civilization as we know it. One important aspect, I think, of, uh, that gives, uh, has given rise to, to uh, some of the uh, bad policies is that there is a major confusion between what makes a country rich and what makes an individual rich. Uh, individuals can get rich by stealing money from each other. Uh, you can uh, engage in, you know, and when I say stealing money, you can exploit other people, you can take advantage of them, you can use market power uh, to take advantage of them, to take advantage of their vulnerabilities. So, but those kinds of activities don't add to the wealth of a nation. Those kinds of activities actually just redistribute uh, uh, money from one person to the other, and in general, as they do that, destroy the wealth of a nation. Econ you know, in economics, we distinguish between wealth creation and rank-seeking. Rank-seeking is trying to get a larger share of the nation's economic pie. And uh, we have uh, a president who is sometimes referred to as uh, the rank seeker in chief or the money laundering chief. Uh, these are activities that are not, you know, in his private life did not lead by taking advantage of his workers, by going bankrupt repeatedly, did not take, did not lead to an increased wealth of the nation. But even if they led to uh, increased personal wealth. And the same thing is if you don't pay your share of taxes, those taxes go to fund education, infrastructure, knowledge, technology, 
the reasons that we have a higher standard of living. And if you're not paying those taxes, you're putting the burden on other people or the overall growth of those investments decline. So um, a focus on market power and exploitation and rent-seeking more generally helps explain many aspects of the U.S. economy and, and some other uh, advanced countries. They explain why the share of labor is down. Um, but one of the interesting thing is, if you look at it, even the share of capital is down. So you can say, well, if the share of labor is down, the share of capital is down, where, where's money going? It's going to rents. And here's just a, uh, uh, it's a little bit hard to uh, explain how you can construct the share of capital, but you know how much investment goes on, you know the normal rate of return on capital, you can talk about risk premium. And if you do this in a reasonable way, you, you see a, a decided downward trend in the share of capital, just like you do in the share of labor. And the answer is what has gone up uh, is uh, the share of the share of capital, uh, the, sh the share of rents uh, in the economy. Well, I want to uh, move on to talk about um, uh, what I'm going to propose as an alternative, what I call progressive capitalism. Uh, in Europe, I would describe it as a reinvigorated social democracy. Uh, it entails a, a new social contract between the market, the state, and civil society. And I we use the words uh, capitalism to remind us that the market plays a, a, a central role. It doesn't, it's not capitalism as, as it's been. Progressive to remind us that it's not unfettered capitalism. Capitalism is not an end in itself, but a means to a broader societal objectives. In the word social democracy, uh, the word democracy is to remind us of the importance of democratic values, and social to remind us that we are trying to create a better society. This view recognizes that a successful society must be based on a rich ecology of institutional arrangements. And uh, sometimes we oversimplify by just uh, talking about markets and government. But there are lots of other institutions. I think the most success, this may be self-serving, but I think the most successful institutions in the United States are our universities. And uh, a few of our great universities are state universities, like University of California at Berkeley. But most of the universities, like Columbia, Harvard, Princeton, are not-for-profit endowments, institutions. Uh, and they work very well. Uh, the profit, the for-profit universities are uh, emblematic of the for-profit universities is Trump University. <laughs> and uh, it excelled in only one thing, exploiting unwary students. And many of you know, it was sued uh, millions and millions of dollars and uh, before he uh, 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 took the presidency, he had to settle those in out-of-court settlement. Uh, um, we also have uh, lots of cooperatives. Um, uh, the only part of our financial system that did not behave badly in the years at, before 2008, and that after the 2008 crisis that continued to lend to small and medium-sized enterprises, were our cooperative banks. 
uh, which we call credit unions, but they were cooperatives and they worked uh, very well. And finally, a point that I'm not going to have time to elaborate on, um, I think it's important to realize that the economic relations shape who we are. Cooperatives encourage cooperative behavior and uh, the kind of selfishness that you see in banks uh, encourages that kind of behavior. And there's been some very interesting work in behavioral economics documenting that bankers are different. Uh, but they, they weren't different when they were our students. They became different as a result of uh, um, uh, what they did with their lives. And that should be an important warning for all of you. Um, so uh, uh, the idea that progress is possible and it's within our power to construct an economic and social system that advances progress is, of course, uh, an idea that has a long tradition. It really can be dated back to the Enlightenment, the ideas that I talked about earlier. But in the American context, uh, the po political manifestation of these occurred in the late part of the 19th century, where uh, it, it was a period of what we call the Gilded Age, when inequality soared to a level uh, comparable to what we have today. And market power, you think of uh, 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 Standard Oil, Rockefeller, um, um, and a whole host of, of monopolies in our economy. And uh, politically, their response was progressive movement. And uh, it resulted in the passage of the first uh, antitrust laws, pro-competition laws, uh, labor legislation, a whole host of social and economic uh, legislation. And uh, what, uh, when I re use the word progressive capitalism, I'm, I'm using, trying to echo, uh, to recall that kind of, of movement uh, in the United States. Um, and uh, this progressive movement uh, actually was remarkably successful and changing, bringing down the level of inequality uh, in the United States. So there are four major elements that I uh, will only be able to describe very briefly. Uh, one of them is rewriting the basic rules of the economy in ways that constrain power and its abuses to create a more efficient and fair economy to ensure that we live within our planetary boundaries. Uh, the current rules, for instance, constrain our opportunities for acting together. They constrain the ability uh, for people to act, uh, bargain together. Uh, they constrain the ability to have class action suits. There have been several uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, in the last couple of years uh, doing that. Uh, and uh, they've uh, a favor, a particular narrow view of capitalism that I talked about, like shareholder uh, value maximization as the, as the central pillar of, of uh, corporate governance. So rewriting the basic rules is the first element. Uh, public expenditures to do what the private sector cannot or will not do, or to do what the government has a comparative advantage. Three, fair and efficient taxation to help finance these public expenditures. And four, ensuring access to a middle class uh, decent life. So I'm only going to have time to talk about a few of these ideas in the next four minutes, three minutes. Um, and uh, 
I want to uh, perhaps spend a little bit more time talking about the first issue is rewriting the rules of the economy. Um, we don't, as economists, typically uh, focus on the rules that govern the economy. But markets don't exist in a, in a vacuum. They have to be structured. Um, societies can't function without a good set of rules. It's part of the rule of law. Uh, for, for instance, without stoplights, which uh, stoplights are a simple regulation, they're a regulation that says who can go first and then who can go next, okay? But if you didn't have that simple regulation, New York City or London would be in a complete gridlock. You couldn't do anything. So that's an example of, of why it is that you need regulations in a complex society. Without regulations, we wouldn't, you know, London air wouldn't be breathable, New York air wouldn't be breathable. Um, we would have a, a sh much shorter lifespan than we have today. So even though market fundamentalists and neoliberals have uh, waged war against regulation, they, they really haven't understood that every society has regulation. It's not really about regulation or deregulation. The question is which regulations? And the regulations affect who the winners in society are, whether you can abuse other people, whether you can take advantage of them, whether you can have market power. So the decision about what are the key rules of the economy are critical rules for deciding both the efficiency and equity of a society. Um, sometimes this is referred to as pre-distribution because it determines the distribution of market income before we redistribute it. But it has first order consequence. And so I su suggested before, I haven't had time to uh, uh, go into it in detail, that much of the inequality in the United States has to do with abuses of market power. Uh, with growth of market power you see in sector after sector. And if you don't have effective antitrust regulation, you're going to get that. And uh, that's become one of the big uh, uh, issues of, uh, in the political debate going forward. So the problem is that the rules governing our economy were rewritten in an era of neoliberalism in ways that led to more inequality, more market power, and a less efficient economy. And uh, now they have to be rewritten again. Um, and this is true about virtually every one of the rules. And I could explain uh, all the rules that need to be uh, explained. I'll, I'll just spend a, a moment on one critical set of rules, and that has to do with climate change. Because, partly because Nick is on the <laughs> But partly because it is an existential issue. I mean, if we can't solve that, all the other issues are, are we will uh, uh, be able to address them. So we have to devise ways of living within our planetary boundaries. Um, we need prices to guide the economy, but prices alone won't suffice. They have to be complemented by regulations and public investments. Um, the, there is an urgency uh, of, of this issue, a scope of what needs to be done of a kind associated with a new deal or a world war. And uh, the reason I like 
the idea of the new de Green New Deal or, uh, is that uh, it can provide an opportunity to change some of the social and economic structures in ways that our social and economic structure were altered by World War II. And it resolves a fundamental quandary. Uh, current policy debate is divided into two groups of people. One is worrying about technological unemployment and a savings glut. Um, ben Bernanke, who is uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, uh, made a famous speech where he said, we have too much savings. Uh, and he called it a savings glut. Interest rates were going down to zero. Now, he, he obviously lived on a different planet than I was living in, uh, because I uh, been a uh, chief economist of the World Bank, uh, uh, as Nick had been, and we saw a world where there is a real uh, shortage of funds for investment. Um, Nick and I have both been concerned about the problem of uh, the green transition and retrofitting the economy for the green transition. And the, so you hear on the one side this issue that we're going to face massive unemployment, we have too much savings. And the other side, when you have a discussion about doing something about climate change, you hear, we can't afford it. What does that mean? We don't have the resources. We don't have the labor or capital to make the green transition. Those both can't be true. One of those two views is wrong. And I think the view is, um, the answer is, that a rapid transition is the best way to ensure full utilization of resources for the immediate future uh, can easily be financed and it would actually stimulate the economy and, and usher in a new era of, of uh, growth. Well, um, the other elements uh, are, are fairly straightforward. I, I want to, to um, say though, uh, uh, a word about what I call a 21st, 21st century reinvigorated welfare state. So the point is, even if we succeed in getting the economy to grow uh, in a green way, in, in, a, in a way that uh, uh, has uh, more shared prosperity, there are just by the nature of the way th th our economies have evolved, it will be very difficult for large numbers of people to achieve a decent standard of living. Uh, access to education for their children, access to health care, um, access to decent housing. Um, a, a whole, the basic necessities of life. Um, You've had an interesting debate here over the National uh, Health Service, and you should appreciate what a treasure you have. It may not be perfect, but uh, anybody who has had experience with the American uh, health care system knows that, as I described before, uh, it's a system that is not working and in which life expectancies are going down, and it plays an important role in that decline. But uh, we don't have that, and that's obviously uh, an example of why we need more, that why just relying on the market is not going to work in many of these areas. 
So, uh, but a 21st century uh, welfare state needs to go beyond social protection, uh, helping individuals as they proceed through life, ensuring opportunity, including opportunity to work. And uh, so let me mention what was maybe one of the more controversial uh, proposals in my book was that after World War II, there was a commitment by government to ensure full employment, relying on indirect monetary and fiscal instruments uh, has failed to fulfill commitment for long periods of time and for significant groups within the population. And we should re reconsider using new instruments, kind of instruments we used in uh, the Great Depression, and the kind of instruments that India has used in the rural area, rural employment guarantee system. So now to come back to the answering the question that uh, the talk began with, is a progressive capitalism an answer to America's problems? Um, yes. Um, the old economic model has failed. Uh, mild changes are not likely to make matters much better. What we is required are major changes. Uh, what you call it is not important. What is important is what we do. And uh, we need a new social contract, a new economic order based on a new relationship between the market state and civil society. And I believe that this can produce greater growth with more equality and address the political, climate, and equality crises that we are confronting today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Uh, signs of appreciation in the room. Um, it's been a, a masterly description and uh, analysis of the big problems of our time um, by one of the great economists of our and other times. Um, for those of you who don't do economics, there probably are a few of you here, um, you should know that underneath that highly accessible account of Joe's was a lot of very serious economics which Joe formal economics, I mean, this was serious economics, a lot of formal economics, which Joe has been uh, absolutely central in creating economics of information, economics of risk, economics of institutions, economics of public policy and so on. I could go on, but there's a lot of formal, hard uh, analysis underneath this uh, seemingly accessible picture. and. Um, it's the great economists that can take the difficult stuff, transform it into uh, serious analyses of the big problems of our time, leading to ways forward which are specific. So thank you, Joe. It was, a, it was, it was great to, to hear that, and you can buy the book and learn more. There's no mathematics in the book, is there? <laughs> no, no mathematics in the book. Um, so we now have uh, just about 20 minutes for questions. Um, in order to give as many possible people uh, a chance, then uh, I'd be grateful if you could keep your questions short, and we're going to take um, three at a time. There's just a lady at the front row here. Karina Robinson, Robinson Hambro. Professor Stiglitz, surely corporates are a big part of the solution to this, and yet every time, you know, you've said they want to pollute. It's not they want to pollute, wasn't it they would say a byproduct? But if you think they just want to pollute or they want to make people addicts, etc., you're assuming that they will not 
operate in any sort of a moral way, a la Quaker and other um, moral imperatives that used to exist. Thank you. Um, is the gentleman over there? The... No, just here, just here. Professor Stieglitz, thanks for, for your very interesting talk. Um, as Europeans, of course, we like to hear about America's problems, particularly when your president is in town. However, being self-critical, I wonder um, which comparative system, economic system and government system is so much better than the American one, given we have negative interest rates, um, high unemployment and anemic economic growth in Europe as well, where government involvement is much stronger. Moreover, some of the biggest innovations that define our daily life, uh, entrepreneurial innovations, come out of the US. Our iPhone ordering Christmas presents through Amazon um, or Googling uh, about economic theories. All these are facts of US entrepreneurial innovation which uh, we don't have in Europe. Thank you. And we'll go to the uh, back, back now. Um, the gentleman just, just here. Yeah, keep going. On the left now. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, coming from India, uh, from our experience, we have certainly experienced that an opening up of the markets has actually bo uh, boosted economic prosperity and programs such as you talked about, such as guaranteed jobs in rural parts of India, such as Manrega, have actually been shown to actually been shown where farmers are just digging up ditches and then filling them up just in the name of employment. So going ahead into the future, how do you think these issues should be tackled given that countries such as China and India have actually benefited a lot from free markets? Yeah. Okay. So um, on, on the first question, the, uh, it's not that they want to pollute but they pursue the objective of maximizing their profits without regard to the social consequences. And this goes back to, in a way, uh, you might say, Adam Smith's invisible hand. The idea was that if the pursuit of uh, uh, self-interest profits would lead, as if by an invisible hand, to the well-being of society. Uh, some people believe that. But uh, one of the advances in economics over the last 40 years uh, was that whenever there are imperfect information, which is always imperfect risk market, which is always imperfect competition, which is always, uh, the reason the invisible hand seems invisible is it's not there. <laughs> so uh, the pursuit of self-interest does not lead to societal well-being. And so that's why you need regulations that say you can't pollute. Uh, so I don't blame them if there, if, if there aren't that regulations in that sense. But uh, I do blame them when they say they fight the regulations and then they say you shouldn't be criticizing us. And it's also important to change the corporate governance. What our firms ought to be looking at the greater consequences. So when uh, Purdue, the drug company that pushed this drug that led to the opioid crisis, knowing that it was more addictive than it was, or the cigarette companies that pushed, that, that said, when all the research was 
they even had the research that showed that cigarettes were bad for your health. They had an advertising campaign and said, there's scientific skepticism about whether cigarettes are bad for your health. They cost people to die. I mean, I think there, there's some limit where you say, uh, you ask yourself, am I going beyond the boundaries of what a decent person should do? And I think American corporations have, in area after area, have done that. And I, I think, you know, I don't know how they live with themselves, quite honestly. So maybe, uh, but I, I think what, what they've done is, is unconscionable. Um, and I could go on, uh, and, but we do, I, I think our main public responsibility is to pass regulations to uh, make sure they don't engage in those kinds of activities and to change the corporate governance to make sure that they have an obligation to look beyond that narrow view uh, of, of uh, profits. The question of uh, where, where are there better systems is a really good question. Uh, and um, I, the answer is there's no perfect system in the world. What we're trying to do is improve our system. Yeah, that's what progress is about. And as we discover failings in our system, we change. So we know that if we don't have environmental regulation, companies will pollute. And we understand why they're going to do that. So we know the danger of that, and that's why we have to have strong environmental regulations. And uh, um, now, one of the part of the issue here is uh, the direction that we will be going in the future versus where we've been. So there's been a myth created that our private sector created all these innovations on its own. The fact is that the internet was a result of government investment. The first browser was the result of government investment. The market was good at bringing these things to the market, <laughs> you know, uh, distribution. The most of, you know, who, you think about what was the most important uh, uh, innovation in, in, in the area of health, discovery of DNA. Who, who did that? That's basic research, and that will never be done by the uh, inadequate amount by the private sector. So that's why I said you need a social contract between the market, the state, and civil society. It's not just one or the other, but we've lost that balance is where I think, and, 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 and if you listen to the people on the neoliberal side, they want to push it even more in the other direction. So I think some of the Scandinavian countries, as you saw before, had lower levels of inequality and higher levels of, of mobility. And if studies that look at broader measures of satisfaction, standards of living, show that they consistently have higher uh, senses of well-being. Um, so I think there's a lot of scope uh, for learning at some of these uh, all of these have problems. A lot of a lot of people say, "Well, they're small, homogeneous uh, countries." But but in fact, even Sweden, about 17% of their population now is immigrants. So they've they've they lost that kind of homogeneity. I don't say it's going to be easy, but I think what we have to do is learn uh, 
from the successes of each of the countries around the world and try to improve our institutions and policies. Uh, so there's no, and, and, and uh, you can't just transplant what worked in one society to another. You just, you have to learn what worked well and think about it, whether you can adapt it to your circumstances. And uh, I feel very convinced that our system wor has worked well better at periods in the past than it has been working right now, and that we could change some in the, some of the re reforms I described. Uh, they're big changes, but they're not that big changes. It's not a re they're not a revolution. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, uh, and then the final question was. Um, Opening up markets in many countries has brought benefits. Uh, and I think that that's true. Um, and then the question again, it's, it's really the flip side of that. Uh, we've gone too much to the private sector in not realizing the value of collective action. And some countries uh, went too far in the other side. Uh, and one try, has to try to get uh, a better balance. I actually think uh, I, I sort of have a different view take on the rural employment uh, guarantee system. Um, this guarantees 100 days of employment to uh, everybody in the rural sector. Not all the projects are great, but there are a lot of good and successful projects. Uh, you need rural roads. If you go to India, you'll see the deficiency in rural roads. Uh, uh, there's a lot of scope for cleanup, of, of creating a better environment uh, visually. Um, there's water. I mean, there's just huge needs for investment at the rural area. And in some places, they've made those investments. And it has made an enormous difference to the livelihood of uh, hundreds of millions of people in the rural areas of India. So uh, not every locality has used those funds as well as they should have, but I think it's made a very big difference in lots of places in India. Maybe you want to. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I've been working in one village in uh, Moradabad district of UP for the last 45 years, and the employment guarantee scheme there um, again, not perfect, but if you look what it's done to the surfacing of roads within the village or lanes within the village and the drainage, it's transformed um, what you can do uh, and the hygiene in the rainy season when you, know, you had the uh, mud and sewage just flowing right down the roads. Now, I know there have been quite a lot of studies of the Employment Guarantee Scheme which have shown that some parts of it have... Um, uh, been, been perverted and there's been corruption and so on um, but I think a blanket denunciation of, of it I think is far too strong I think there are too many strong examples of the benefits that uh, it's brought um, three quick questions I'll have to be the last um, and there is a, a, an LSE tradition of gender balance um, right, right at the back there <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm a student of European International Public Policy here at LSE, and as much as I can show sympathy towards your critique of neoliberalism, I'm just a bit concerned of the, of like following uh, the pro 
like the the progressive capitalism alternative um as much as like we europeans we have we have a history of following um rules uh, where uh which then led up to actually compromising the welfare state which with uh, of which we are really proud of in comparison to the US where it's um not so strong so i'm just a bit uh, critical and, and just a bit um uh, let's say not so uh, hopeful <laughs> Uh, when it comes to uh, protecting the welfare state, which is already um, uh, growing more and more unstable in Europe. And then right to the back, please. Thank you very much. Um, so I think, uh, thank you very much for this presentation. It was really inspiring. But um, so it seems that at the moment, uh, the majority of the governments, uh, especially in Western countries, are going exactly in the other direction. So the welfare star is being cutted, a lot of funds for health education has uh, decreased in this year. So what do, what do you think are the good um, nudges and how to convince governments to go to, to this other direction? And then right over by the wall there, far wall. And sadly, that'll have to be the last one. Thank you, Professor, for your uh, very inspiring talk. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, cities within countries. Cities are considered the engines of national economic growth, but over the past 40 years, uh, inequality has skyrocketed within cities. Despite them having the most economic opportunities, why has inequality risen so sharply in them, and why does that continue to persist? Uh, so let me begin with the cities, because that's been a bit of a, 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 an interesting issue that's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, uh, recently, um, and uh, the it, it's important because it it also is part of the story of the inequality in the United States that I didn't have uh, time to talk about. Um, there, over the last thirty or forty years, uh, there's been uh, a significant increase in economic segregation, with rich people living with rich people and poor with poor, but. Uh, what it really is that that the cities as a whole have done well, and the rural areas have not. And uh, the cities have become a source of the dynamic uh, 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 growth in the United States, and uh, the rural areas have have, have really uh, lagged behind. Um, and I think it's. Uh, Maybe not a surprise. There's a lot of work that's been done on urban agglomeration and, and interaction, innovation. Uh, people don't innovate in general in isolation. You know, why is Silicon Valley as dynamic as it is? It's, it's become an innovation center. People talk to each other and, and, and ideas. And that's an agglomeration. Uh, there, so cities are are part of the story of the success of the United States. But the nature of that is that in the United States is that uh, there are some very very successful people, many of whom, like those at Apple, doesn't pay taxes. Uh, but then, because we don't have, you know, we have a. a a, a, a abysmal minimum wage, which I described in that figure, they want people to work for them at low wages doing unskilled jobs. So the polarization of the labor force gets reflected in the cities more dramatically 
than it does everywhere else. In, in the rural areas, everybody's poor. You, you may have uh, 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 less inequality than you do in the cities, but that's not because of greater success. It's, it's really a, the, the failure. But the, and then a lot of the issues of uh, urban development uh, lead to um, high ranks. Uh, you need to be near those jobs. Uh, and therefore, the standards of living are even lower. They're, they're, I, I was once on, on one of the, um, uh, uh, we have these uh, evening comedy shows uh, that give news. And um, uh, it was after I wrote a, 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 an earlier book on inequality. And uh, 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 Bill Maher is the show. Some of you, uh, and uh, he said, well, you know, at the, at the wages, at the minimum wages in New York, um, you could afford uh, a one-bedroom apartment in New York uh, if you work 400 hours a week. <laughs> and he was trying to... Uh, uh, that is a clearly no way that you could uh, uh, live uh, in, in New York. So people at the bottom really do suffer in these cities uh, a lot. And that's... Uh, why, particularly in cities, you have to deal with these issues of zoning, that's a kind of regulation, how do you have people living together that are more mixed, uh, how do you get the, the challenges of, of, of equal, uh, providing the basic necessities of life in an urban area for everybody are even greater, and that, that reflected my, my statement about creating a welfare system a wealth uh, for is really particularly acute uh, in the cities. Um, the um, issues that uh, the other two questions uh, dealt with is uh, Europe and the direction in which America is going uh, and much of the world is going seems to be just the opposite of uh, what I talked about here. Well, let me uh, uh, share you a, a little bit of some optimism. Uh, it may change after November of next year, but, but at this point, uh, an a, a element of optimism uh, about the United States. Uh, and that is, uh, I don't think the, uh, there's ever been in my lifetime as much enthusiasm over the progressive movements that I've talked about uh, as there is today. Uh, and every one of the issues that uh, you, know, you, you might uh, people care about uh, climate change, inequality, um, uh, gun control, uh, uh, you know, human rights. Uh, the level of enthusiasm uh, of an engagement by the, the younger people is just enormous. And there's developed a very, in the United States a very big political divide between younger people and older people. So when they do polling, you know, more than two to one, three to one, the progressive agenda is supported by younger people. We have a problem with uh, those of us over uh, some age, but among the younger people, uh, it is almost a consensus, and uh, we brought uh, 
AOC, I don't know if you know uh, this very uh, um, uh, successful young uh, American politician uh, to Columbia to give a talk. And, um, you know, our students just were uh, so enthusiastic and so engaged with um, the kind of politics that she was offering. So, uh, to me, I think that's what this... Um, that's what this battle is really about. It, it is, I think it's a very live battle. I think it's a battle of the past versus the future. I mean, I think there are a lot of people, Trump are trying to resurrect an economy of the 1950s that wasn't that great for a large fractions of the population. It wasn't great if you were a woman. It wasn't great if you were black. It wasn't great if you were Hispanic. Uh, you know, so there were some people for whom it was, they've created an image as, as if it were a great world. But um, we're not going to go back there, even if it were great. Uh, it, it was a period in which America uh, dominated uh, the world politically because Europe was recovering from World War II. Um, so there were many dis distinctive aspects of that particular period. As I say, we're not going to go back there. And the question is, what will the world of the next 25 years be like, 40 years? Are, are we going to double down on that failed neoliberal experiment? And the point of my book uh, is that would be a, a real mistake. We know 40 years is a, it's a long period of time in the history of capitalism. And we know how that's worked out. And it hasn't worked out very well for a very large fraction of the country. You saw that chart where stagnation on the bottom, it wasn't the bottom 10% we're talking about, we're talking about the bottom 90%. So the question is, is that the future? Do you want more of that or do you want something else? And there's no guarantees here, but at least I think it has a prospect of doing a lot better than we've done in the last 40 years. Thank you, Joe. Now, um, before I say thank you and ask you to convey your thanks as well, can I just ask one thing? Um, once you begin clapping, you could go on until Joe and I have got out. The, um, <laughs> the reason for that is that we want Joe to be able to sign as many books as possible. And if he's waylaid here or the things are all blocked, then that, that won't happen. So that was the procedural question. Um, <laughs> The, and it's a request to you. Um, but Joe, you, you've shown us that uh, careful, clear-headed economics can take us a very long way in understanding and understanding how to tackle the big problems of our time. Uh, we just need more economists to actually do that. But our subject's capable of doing that. It just needs to do more of it and more people doing it in stronger ways. That's a, a very powerful lesson. You had a great sweep across a whole waterfront of big problems and showed how you can tie them all together. There is a way forward. It's uh, been a privilege to be here, Joe, and I hope you'll join me in thanking Joe very much. <laughs>